Chapter Twenty Two of With Clive in India. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gary Ullman. As the English troops advanced, they were met on the outskirts of the settlement by the enemy, who contested bravely every garden and enclosure with them. The British force was, however, too strong to be resisted, and gradually the French were driven back until they formed in rear of the battery. Clive at once took possession of the houses surrounding it, and from them kept up all day a heavy fire upon the defenders until at nightfall these fell back upon the fort after spiking their guns. The loss of this position compelled the French to abandon the other outlying batteries from which during the night they withdrew their guns into the fort. The next four days Clive spent in bringing up the guns landed from the fleet and establishing batteries round the fort and on the 19th he opened fire against it. On the same day the three men of war, the Kent of 64 guns, the Tiger of 60 and the Salisbury of 50 anchored just below the channel which the governor believed he had blocked up. The next four days were spent by the fleet in sounding to discover whether the statements of the French deserter were correct. During this time, a heavy cannonade was kept up unceasingly between Clive and the fort. In this garrison had the best of it, silenced some of the English guns, killed many of the assailants, and would certainly have beaten off the land attack had the fleet not been able to interfere in the struggle. All this time, the governor was hoping that aid would arrive from the nabob. The latter, indeed, did send a force under Raja Dulab Ram, but the governor of Hooghly, bribed by Omichud, sent messages to the officer urging him to halt, as Chandrangadur was about to surrender, and he would only incur the anguish of the English uselessly. On the morning of the 23rd, having ascertained that a channel was free, the fleet advanced, the tiger leading made her way through the passage and taking up a position abreast of the northeast bastion of the fort opened a heavy fire upon it with her guns and harassed the besieged with a musketry fire from her tops the kent was on the point of anchoring opposite the water gate when so heavy a fire was poured upon her that in the confusion the cable ran out and the ship dropped down till she anchored at a point exposed to a heavy crossfire from the southeast and southwest bastions. Owing to this accident, the Salisbury was forced to anchor a hundred and fifty yards below the fort. The French fought with extreme bravery, vastly superior as were the English force and guns. The French fire was maintained with the greatest energy and spirit. The gunners being directed and animated by Monsieur de Vazdi, captain of one of the ships which had been sunk. No advantage was gained by the Tiger in her struggle with the northeast bastion, and the guns of the southwest bastion galled the Kent so severely that the admiral, neglecting the southeast bastion, was forced to turn the whole of his guns upon it. De Vagonese concentrated his fire against one point of the Kent and presently succeeded in setting her on fire. The conflagration spread. A panic ensued, 
and some seventy or eighty men jumped into the boats alongside. The officers, however, rallied the rest of the crew. The fire was extinguished, and the men returned to their duty, and the cannonade was recommenced. After the battle had ranged for two hours, the fire of the fort began to slacken as one after another of the guns was dismounted. Monsieur Renault saw that the place could be no longer defended. Of his 146 soldiers, over 90 had been killed and wounded. Collecting the remainder in their officers with 20 sepoys, the governor ordered them to leave the fort immediately, making a detour to avoid the English, who were aiding the fleet by attacking the land side, and to march to Kusumbazar to join Monsieur Law, who commanded there. Then, there remaining in the fort only the clerks, women, and wounded, the he hoisted a flag of truce. Terms were speedily arranged. The governor and all the civilians and natives were allowed to go where they choose with their clothes and linen. The wounded French soldiers were to remain as prisoners of war. Chen Dranagor cost the English 206 men. The attack upon the French colony was blamed by many at the time, for in the hour of English distress, they had offered to remain neutral instead of joining the nabob in crushing us. Upon the other hand, there was force in the arguments with which Admiral Watson had defended his refusal to sign the Treaty of Neutrality. That treaty would not be binding unless ratified by Pontchartrain, and to Pontchartrain it was known that the most powerful fleet and army France had ever sent to India was on its way. It was also known that Bussy, at the court of Nizam of the Deccan, was in communication with the Nabob. Thus, then, in a short time, England's interests in India might be menaced more formidably than ever before, and the crushing out of the French colony, almost at the gates of Calcutta, was a measure of extreme importance. It was hard upon the gallant governor of Chandranagor, but public opinion generally agreed that the urgency of the case justified the course adopted by the English authorities at Calcutta. Suraja Udaula was filled with fury at the news of the capture of the Chandranagor, but hearing a rumor two days later that the Afghans were upon their march to attack him, he wrote letters to Clive and Watson congratulating them upon their success and offering to them the territory of Chandranagor on the same terms upon which it had been held by the French. But the young tyrant of Moorshedabob was swayed by constantly fluctuating feeling. At one moment his fears were uppermost, the next his anger and hate of the English. Instead of recalling the army of Raja Dulab Ram, as he had promised, he ordered it to halt at Plassey, a large village twenty-two miles south of Moorshedabad. The English were represented at his court by Mr. Watts, who had the greatest difficulty in maintaining his position in the constantly changing moods of the nabob. One day the latter would threaten to order him to be led to instant execution. 
the next he would load him with presents besides mr watts the english affairs were conducted by omichun who aided by the sets or native bankers whom suraja udala had plundered and despoiled got up a conspiracy among the nabob's most intimate followers the history of these intrigues is the most unpleasant feature in the life of clive mir jaffna the nabob's general himself offered to mr watts to turn traitor if the succession to the kingdom was bestowed upon him this was agreed to upon his promise to pay not only immense sums to the company but enormous amounts to the principal persons on the english side so enormous indeed were these demands that even mere jaffier anxious as he was to conclude the alliance was aghast the squadron was to have two million and a half rubies and the same amount was to be paid for the army presents amounted to six millions of rupees were to be distributed between clive major kirkpatrick and the governor the governor and the members of the council clive's share of these was enormous sums amounted to two million eighty thousand rupees in those days a rupee was worth half a crown never did an english officer make such a bargain for himself but even this is not the most dishonorable feature of the transaction. Omichion had, for some time, been kept in the dark as to what was going forward, but, obtaining information through his agents, he questioned Mr. Watts concerning it. The latter then informed him of the whole state of affairs, and Omichion, whose services to the English had been immense, naturally demanded a share of the plunder whether or not he threatened to diverge the plot to the nabob unless his demands were satisfied is doubtful at any rate it was considered prudent to pacify him and he was accordingly told that he should receive the sum he named clive and the members of the council however although willing to gratify their own extortionate greed at the expense of mere jaffier determined to rob omichion of his share in order to do this two copies of the treaty with mere jaffier were drawn up on different colored papers they were exactly alike except that in one the amount to be given to the omichion was entirely omitted this was the real treaty the other was intended to be destroyed after being shown to a friend of omichion in order to convince the latter that all was straight and honorable all the english authorities placed their signatures to the real treaty but admiral watson indignantly refused to have anything to do with the fictitious one or to be a party in any way to the deceit practiced on omichion in order to get out of the difficulty Clive himself forged Admiral Watson's signature to the fictitious treaty. A more disgraceful transaction was never entered into by a body of English gentlemen. That Mr. Drake and the members of his council, the pitiful cowards who fled from Calcutta and refused to allow the ships to draw off its brave garrison, should consent to such a transaction 
was but natural but that clive the gallant and dashing commander should have stooped to it is sad indeed it may be said that to the end of his life clive defended his conduct in this transaction under the excuse that amichan was a scoundrel the indian was not indeed an estimable character openly he was the friend and confidant of the nabob while all the time he was engaged in bribing and corrupting his officers and in plotting with his enemies this however in no way alters the facts that he rendered inestimable service to the english and that the men who deceived and cheated him were to the full as greedy and grasping as himself without in the case of the governor and his council having rendered any service whatever to the cause at last the negotiations were complete more and more severely did clive press upon the nabob having compelled him to expel law and the french first from the moors hedabad and then from his dominions he pressed fresh demands upon him until the unfortunate prince driven to despair and buoyed up with the hope that he should receive assistance from Bussy, who had just expelled the English from their factory at Visapatam, ordered Mir Jaffe to advance with 15,000 men to reinforce Raja Dulabram at Plassey. Clive, in fact, forced on hostilities. His presence with that of a considerable portion of his army was urgently required at Madras. He was sure, however, that the instant he had gone and the english force was greatly weakened the nabob would again commence hostilities and the belief was shared by all in india he was therefore determined to force on the crisis as soon as possible in order that the nabob being disposed of he should be able to send reinforcements to madras while these negotiations had been going on charlie marryat had remained in calcutta he had been severely wounded in the attack on chandranagore and was carried down to calcutta in a boat on arriving there he heard that the lizzie anderson had just cast anchor off the fort he caused himself at once to be conveyed on board and was received with the greatest heartiness and pleasure by his old friend the captain and assiduously attended by the doctor of the ship in order that he might have as much air as possible the captain had a sort of tent with a double covering erected on deck during the daytime the sides of this were lifted so that the air could pass freely across the bed charlie's wound was a severe one and had he been nursed in a hospital on shore it is probable that it would have been fatal thanks however to the comforts on board ship the freshness and coolness of the situation and the care of all surrounding him he was after some weeks illness pronounced convalescent and was sufficiently recovered to join the force with which clive marched against Plassey this force consisted of nine hundred and fifty european infantry a hundred artillerymen fifty sailors and two thousand one hundred supports the artillery consisted of eight six-pounders and two small howitzers 
the army of the nabob was fifty thousand strong and against such a force it was indeed an adventurous task for an army of three thousand men of whom only one-third were europeans to advance to the attack everything depended in fact upon the mir jaffier and his two colleagues in treachery rajah dulab ram and yar luft khan the nabob on hearing of clive's advance had sent to monsieur law who was with a hundred and fifty men at a place over a hundred miles distance to which he had in accordance with the orders of clive been obliged to retire and begged him to advance to join him with all speed the nabob had with him forty or fifty frenchmen commanded by monsieur saint Fraz, formerly one of the council of chadranagor these had some field pieces of their own and also directed the native artillery of fifty-three guns principally thirty-two twenty-four and eighteen pounders had clive been sure of the cooperation of mir jaffier and his confederates who commanded three out of the four divisions of the nabob's army he need not have hesitated but he was till the last moment in ignorance whether to rely upon them the nabob having become suspicious of mir jaffier had obtained from him an oath sworn on the koran of fidelity and although the traitor continued his correspondence with clive his letters were of very dubious character and clive was in total ignorance as to his real intentions so doubtful indeed was he that when only a few miles of ground and the river bagirathi lay between him and the enemy clive felt the position so serious that he called a council of war and put to them the question whether they should attack the nabob or fortify themselves at katwar and hold that place until the rainy season which had just set in with great violence should abate all the officers above the rank of subalterns twenty in number were present clive himself contrary to custom gave his vote first in favor of halting at Katwa, Major Kimpatrick, who commanded the company's troops, Major Grant of the 37th and 10 other officers voted the same way. Major Erie Coots declared in favor of an immediate advance. He argued that the troops were in high spirits and had hitherto too been everywhere successful and that a delay would allow Monsieur law and his troops to arrive he considered that if they determined not to fight they should fall back upon calcutta charlie marriott supported him as did five other officers all belonging to the indian service the decision taken the council separated and clive strolled away to a grove and sat down by himself there he thought over in his mind the arguments which had been advanced by both sides he saw the force of the arguments which had been adduced by major Ericoot and charlie marriott and his own experience showed him that the daring course is always the most prudent one in fighting asiatics at last he came to a conclusion rising he returned to the camp 
and meeting major coote on the way informed him that he had changed his mind and would fight the next day charlie returned to his tent after the council broke up disheartened at the results he was greeted by tim sure your honor hossein is in despair the water has filled up the holes where he makes his fires and the rain has soaked the wood your dinner is not near cooked yet and half the dishes are spoilt it does not matter a bit tim charlie said you know i'm not particular about my eating though hossein will always prepare a dinner fit for an alderman we are going to fight them tomorrow your honor i hope tim said it's sick to death i am of wading around here in the wet like a duck it's as bare as the bogs of old ireland without the blessings of the pigs and potatoes to say nothing of the colleens no tim i'm afraid we're going to stop where we are for a bit the council of war have decided not to fight sure then that's bad news tim said the worst i've heard for many a day what if there be fifty thousand of em master charles haven't we bade em at long odds before and can't we do it again i think we could tim charlie replied but the odds of fifty-three heavy cannon which the spies say they got to our ten popcorns is serious however i'm sorry we're not going to fight and i'm afraid that you must take up your mind to the wet and hussein his to giving me bad dinners for some weeks to come that is to say if the enemy don't turn us out of this a few minutes later lieutenant peters entered the tent is it true charlie that we are not going to fight after all true enough charlie said we are to wait till the rains are over rains peter said in disgust what have the rains got to do with it if we had a six weeks march before us i can understand the wet weather being a hindrance men are not water rats and to watch all day in these heavy downpours and to lie all night in the mud would soon tell upon our strength but here we are within a day's march of the enemy and the men might as well get wet in the field is here everyone longs to be at the enemy and a halt will have a very bad effect what have you got to drink charlie i have some brandy and rum nothing else charlie said what will be better than either for you is a cup of tea hossein makes it as well as ever i suppose you have dined yes half an hour ago just as charlie finished his meal major ear cooled put his head into the tent marriott the chief has changed his mind we cross the river the first thing in the morning and move at once upon plassey hurray charlie shouted clive is himself again that is good news indeed you will move your sepoys down to the river at daybreak and we'll be the first to cross there is no chance of any opposition as the spies tell us that the nabob has not arrived yet at plassey several other officers afterwards dropped into the tent for the news rapidly spread through the camp there was as had been the case at the council 
considerable differences of opinion as to the prudence of the measure but among the junior officers and men the news that the enemy were to be attacked at once was received with hearty satisfaction here major a fellow subaltern of peters said as he entered the tent followed by a servant i have brought in a half a dozen bottles of champagne i started with a dozen from calcutta and had intended to keep these to celebrate our victory but as in the first place all heavy baggage is to be left here and in the second it has occurred to me that possibly i may not come back to help to drink it we may as well turn it to the good purpose of drinking success to the expedition some of the bottles were opened and a merry evening was spent but the party broke up early for they had a heavy day's work before them on the morrow at daybreak the troops were in movement towards the banks of the bagaridi they had brought boats with them from the chandranagore and the work of crossing the river continued without intermission until four in the afternoon when the whole force was landed on the left bank here clive received another letter from mir jaffia informing him that the nabob had halted at mankara and intended to entrench himself there he suggested that the english should undertake a circuitous march and attack him in the rear but as this march would have exposed clive to being cut off from his communications and as he was still very doubtful of the good faith of the conspirators he determined to march straight forward and sent word to mir jaffia to that effect from the point where clive had crossed the bag girati it was fifteen miles to plassey following as they did the curves of the river it was necessary to do this as they had no carriage and the men were obliged to tow their supplies in boats against the stream orders were issued that as soon as the troops were across they should prepare to eat their dinners as the march was to be resumed at once the rain was coming down in a steady pour as the troops drenched to the skin started upon their march the stream swollen by the rains was in full flood and the work of towing the heavy laden barges was wearisome in the extreme all took a share in the toil in many cases the river had overflowed its banks and the troops had to struggle through the water up to their waists while they tugged and strained at the ropes charlie as a mountain officer rode at the head of his sepoys who formed the advance of the force three hundred men preceded the main body who were towing the boats to guard them from any sudden surprise tim marched beside him occasionally falling back and taking a turn at the ropes this is dog's work mr charles he said it's lucky that it's raining for the river can't make us wetter than we are my hands are fairly sore with pulling at the ropes ah tim you not found the ropes you know you remember that night at moors had a bod faith your honor and i'll not forget it if i live to be as old as methuselah well your honor it will be hard on us if we do not thrash them niggers tomorrow after all the trouble we are taking to be at them 
at one o'clock in the morning the weary troops reached the village of plassy they marched through it and halted and bivouacked in a large mango grove short distance beyond end of chapter twenty two